Thanks for tuning in to Redeeming Grace Bible Church. Here at Redeeming Grace Bible Church, it's our full conviction, as Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We pray as a result of this sermon, you come to see and know Christ more clearly, and if you do not yet know Christ, that you might also come to see him as Lord and Savior. First Samuel 14, starting here. First Samuel 14, 1 to 23. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Hitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord, in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes and the name of the other Sena. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash and the other on the south in front of Gibeah. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men. We will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up for the Lord has given them into our hand. And this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet, and his armor bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about twenty men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled, and the earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count, and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at the time with the people of Israel. Now, while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow, and there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time, and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites." 
who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond beth Thank you, Brock. Remember, once again, that though the grass withers and though the flower fades, that the word of our God remains forever. And let's just go to the Lord as we ask help to understand this passage uh, that we're looking at this morning. Bow with me, please. Father in heaven, we come to you, Lord, and we know that, Lord, you um, dwell in unapproachable light, and it pleased you to send Christ into the world that was shrouded in darkness due to our sin and rebellion. Lord, the light of man coming into the world. And Lord, that you have graciously spoken into our darkened hearts, saying, let there be light. Lord, let, it, um, let, let life be brought to us through the word, through the gospel, by the spirit. And so God, we pray even now as we open up your word, that it would not simply be uh, words on a page or an account of historical events, but it would be truly light to your people would be nourishment to our souls, Lord, and that you would instruct us in how these truths apply to us today, thousands of years later, but God, knowing that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we can trust in you as well. And Lord, we look to you as our mighty Savior in our own day as well. And so I pray your help now for me as I speak and as I seek to Uh, understand this and apply it to your people. I pray also for attentive hearts and discerning hearts, Lord, in in your people. And we also pray that uh, if there are those who do not know you, have not, Lord, turned from the tyranny of sin to, Lord, come to the saving Christ, Lord Jesus, our Savior, I pray that they too would, Lord, be pleased to, to come even today and receive forgiveness and newness of life by your Spirit. We know this is a work that you alone can do within us. And so we ask that you'd be pleased to work among us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So this morning, we come to this very unique passage, probably one of these passages that we've all read through, probably rather quickly, and you kind of think, oh, that's a very, you know, very uh, unusual um, victory, a very shocking um, step of Jonathan, and and maybe that's at times as far as we go. And and so we have opportunity this morning to to think about this a little more deeply in the context of what's going on, um, in the context of what we've seen already in 1 Samuel, and how this story fits into God's work among his people. And in essence, we see once again in the account of Scripture that God is mighty to save his people. He is a God who is mighty to save. And it's often easy for us to say true things about God, about the character of God, about the ways of God. But it's another matter to have those truths alter the way that we live and behave and affect the very decisions that we make. This connection between what we truly believe about God and how we live that out day by day. Tozer, A.W. Tozer said in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, 
He said, perverted notions about God soon rot the religion in which they appear. The long career of Israel demonstrates this clearly enough, and the history of the church confirms it. So necessary to the church is a lofty concept of God that when that concept in any measure declines, the church with her worship and her moral standards declines along with it. The first step down for any church is taken when it surrenders its high opinion of God. And certainly we see that here in in Israel's history uh, over 3,000, around 3,000 years ago. We've seen that throughout church history, even as we think about the, for example, Protestant Reformation, then when the understanding of God and his gospel becomes so diminished that it results in, in faithlessness, hopelessness, bondage to sin. This morning, I want to see how Jonathan's understanding of who God is affected the way he behaved in rather hopeless and frightening circumstances. We know that just previous to this, Saul had an impressive start. He uh, began his, his kingly rule with a wonderful victory over the Ammonites, and the people gathered to him, and it seemed that he would certainly be the warrior champion king that the Israelites were hoping for in a king like the nation's. But very soon, that dissolves into hopelessness. It dissolves into chaos and disorder among the ranks of Israel. And we were left last time not only seeing Saul's compromise, but also this picture of Israel being poorly equipped. They essentially had farming tools that they were trying to use as weapons because the Philistines had prevented them from having their own blacksmiths and forging weapons. They were hiding and scattering. Saul, who started with thousands of men, now is reduced down to, we're told, 600. And we find this picture of Israel trembling in their boots before this horde of Philistines who had come against them. So there's this question that comes up once again in the Old Testament. This question of, is this the end of the line for Israel? Is God going to finally turn them over to their own unbelief, their own prideful and arrogant uh, agendas that they bring, demanding kings and such? Is God going to allow them to be destroyed? Certainly the Philistines had the arm, the the ability and the the weaponry and the, the organization to completely decimate Israel at this time. But again, we still have Samuel's words that he spoke to the people when when Saul was crowned king. He said, don't fear, serve the Lord with your whole heart, for he will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. And so yet again, though Israel finds themselves in a very hopeless situation, God is pleased to raise up a small s savior for them. And we find that in the unlikely place of Saul's own son, Jonathan. He emerges as one whom the Lord will use to yet again deliver his people. And we have this really wonderful statement from Jonathan that uh, is somewhat central to our message this morning here. As he is speaking to his armor bearer, we find that Jonathan has a confidence and an assurance in the God who is mighty to save. And his entire Mission, his entire plan of coming against this 
Philistine garrison is based upon the fact that he believes God is able to save, he says, with the many or with few. If you look in verse 6, he tells the armor bearer, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And so Jonathan's understanding of who God is, he is a mighty God. He is able to save his people. It doesn't matter if there is a large army or a small handful of people, God can deliver. And it's upon this understanding of God that Jonathan sets forth in this seemingly suicidal mission. Uh, As far as any human reasoning would consider it, this is suicide for Jonathan and for his armor bearer. But because he is compelled by this truth, God is mighty to save his people. He begins acting according to that conviction. And so the question is, if we truly believe that God is mighty to save, how should that affect us? How should this truth, God is mighty to save, alter the way we go throughout life and the way we understand uh, God to be? And so, first of all, I want to consider with you as we look at this account that because we are convinced God is mighty to save, instead of being crippled by fear, we should be compelled forward in hope. We should be a people who are not crippled by fear, but compelled forward in hope. And the contrast here of Saul and Jonathan is very stark. Saul, we have this picture of him essentially hiding on the outskirts of Gibeah. So he has set up his base camp. He has went to the outskirts of Gibeah, somewhat distancing himself from the Philistines. And Saul, we're told, is under the pomegranate cave. Now, they believe this was the opening of a cave at which there was also a large pomegranate tree. So he has essentially set himself up something of a bunker to be a source of protection from the enemy. And though he has 600 soldiers with him, 600 men that he has chosen out of the Israelites, and he has, we're told, what's left of the the priesthood from Eli, an interesting little insight here that, um, so we're told that Uh, Ichabod's nephew is now wearing the ephod. And if you recall, Ichabod was born just as the ark was taken out. His name means literally the glory of the Lord has departed. And so there's still this remnants of this priesthood that is also with Saul. And we will find that for Saul, this was more of a means of just getting direction from God than it was really a demonstration of faith in God. Uh, It's almost viewed a bit like Saul, like his uh, good luck charm, or sometimes even like the the magical, you know, eight ball that you shake and then it gives you the right answer as to what to do. And, And so Saul is obviously crippled by fear. He is not convinced that God is mighty to save his people. And because of that, he has basically bunkered down and just kind of waiting for something to hopefully happen. Now, contrast with Saul, we have Jonathan, who instead of hiding and being crippled by the surmounting enemy forces, Jonathan decides that he will 
along with his armor bearer, set out on this crazy mission to take out the garrison of the Philistines. And he is compelled because he knows that God is able to save his people. And so we have the account of of what happens. Um, Jonathan is separated from Michmash. So you have the, the, the town of Gibeah on one side of this large ravine and on the other side, Michmash. And I know a few uh, weeks ago, was it last week? A few weeks ago, a bunch of you went hiking down the Heinz Creek and uh, were able to walk along the um, riverbed now because this time of year it's quite dry and it actually provides something of a pathway in which you can walk. Well, that was something similar to what the case was here. Between these two towns was this large ravine, and it was used as something of a pathway for the Philistines and their trade and for travel throughout the area. But on either side of this large ravine, we have this picture of two rock faces, and they're actually named. They're somewhat of a landmark in Israel, and they, it literally means the, the one is, is, is shining, and the other one almost has the implication of, of a slippery rock face. And so... These are are rock faces that generally would be considered quite um, impassable. Not your first choice of a route to get to Michmash. But this is the the plan that Jonathan comes up with. They make their way down into the ravine and they can see the, the, the garrison of the Philistines on the other side. And he comes up with this plan that they're going to put out a test, if you will, kind of like... Um, you know, Gideon putting out the fleece before God. He's going to throw out a, they're going to reveal themselves to the Philistines. And if they call him to come, he's taking that as an indication that God has delivered them into his hands and they will go up and attack this garrison. And that is how this plays out. He, he, he makes his way down to the bottom of this ravine. The Philistines see him and his armor bearer and no doubt in a somewhat uh, mocking tone, they are calling out to him. They make this comment, oh, look, the, the Hebrews are coming out of their holes. They're coming out of their hiding. These bunch of cowards who run and flee at the first sight of trouble. Look at them. And they no doubt are, are somewhat mocking Jonathan and his armor bearer. And they tell them, why don't you come up here? And, and, and no doubt this is not a, a friendly exchange. This is done in, in a somewhat mocking way. But Jonathan, confident that God is certainly able to give him the victory, we find him and his armor bearer scale this steep rock face. And as they come to the top of the hill, we give this description of a a, a furrow wide of, of land, an acre long. It's almost this picture of him coming up to this narrow ridge. And it's upon this ridge that Jonathan begins attacking the Philistines, making his way forward. And uh, I had this scene in my mind from um, Lord of the Rings when they're fighting the, the orcs and they are on the bridge at the castle of Helm's Deep and the, the enemy is approaching and because of the narrow bridge they're able to more easily overcome the enemy one at a time. It's almost the picture Jonathan on this narrow ravine with his armor bearer behind him pushing his way forward through the ranks of the Philistines. And of course God who is with him, brings about a great victory. So Jonathan is compelled forward in the hope that God will save and can save. And this is not Jonathan coming up with his own plan, with his own uh, ingenuity or his own strength. He is trusting that God, through him, will bring about a victory over the Philistines. 
And I think there is certainly application for us as well as Christians, as those who are indwelt by the presence of the living God, who have been given the promises of God's word in Christ Jesus, we are called to also be a bold and courageous people, not trusting our own strength, but trusting in the strength of God, trusting in his ability to bring about even what we might consider impossible. And of course, we know there are many circumstances in our lives where we may feel the temptation to be crippled by fear. One of the most terrifying things that that we can face at times is even sharing the gospel with an unbeliever, sharing the gospel with a a family member or a co-worker. Or maybe you're in in line at the grocery store and just talking with someone and and, and somehow the things of God come up and and we can be crippled by fear and and not wanting to to trust that God will use his word to, to possibly save this person. And even as we look at the early church, often they were praying not simply for deliverance from their circumstances, but boldness to stand strong in the midst of them, to proclaim the gospel boldly, to trust that God would bless it and would use it. And as followers of Christ, we are to move forward with confidence that God is a God who can save us, who can preserve us and bring about the advancing of his kingdom. Maybe even as a church family, we're at times tempted to, to, to withdraw from one another. There, there's a sense of fear at times, even in making ourselves vulnerable to one another. Maybe you, you're needing some, some prayer for something in your life, or you're needing help with something practically. Or maybe it's just a matter of, of not wanting to, to, um, to really invest yourself in the lives of others. And, and we all have this tendency to want to withdraw as a way of, of preserving ourselves And it can sometimes be motivated even by fear, fear of possibly being rejected, fear of of not being, uh, maybe having the the influence that we want. Even with our own children, we can be crippled by fear sometimes. We know our own inadequacies, we know uh, our desperate need, and so sometimes we we maybe don't engage with them about the things of God, or raising hard questions, or confronting sin, because we are compelled by fear, but as Christians, knowing who God is should enable us to proceed in hope and in confidence because he has promised to be with us. And there's a wonderful uh, passage in Second Samuel. Now, this is not Jonathan writing, but it's um, the man who would become his closest friend. And in many ways, Jonathan sets up a, a picture of who David would be as the king. But in 2 Samuel 22, 30, listen to this, these words of David as he testifies to his hope in the Lord. Of course, you could read this whole psalm. Um, would be well worth the time, but we'll just take a, a section here. So 2 Samuel 22, verse 30. And David writes, for by you, well, I'll back up to 29, uh, for you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. 
He made my feet like the feet of the deer, and he set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation, and your gentleness made me great. You gave a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them and did not turn back until they were consumed. And David testifies time and time again of how, in in a very literal way, in the midst of battle, the Lord preserved him and gave him feet like the feet of a deer and trained his hands for war and gave him the ability to leap over a wall. And that's the picture of Jonathan here, this bold confidence in the, the saving power and grace of God. Maybe a more modern example of someone who allowed their view of God to compel them forward in hope is William Carey, who is sometimes referred to as the father of of, uh, foreign missions in some ways. And he made the statement, even as he went into India and was there part of planting uh, the inland mission, uh, or that's um, China, but anyways, part of planting a mission work that would, would really be a means through which God would reach hundreds of people in India, William Carey said, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. And this is the way many of these men lived their lives, this sense of expectancy from God. And they, on this basis, would then attempt what would seem to be impossible with God's blessing bore much fruit. So knowing God is mighty to save compels us in hope But it also should help us to, instead of being um, anxious and uncertainty, the knowledge of this truth helps us to rest in humble dependence upon God. Instead of being given over to anxious uncertainty in our life, if we believe truly that God is a God who is mighty to save, then we can rest in humble dependence upon him. And we see this also in the life of Jonathan, contrasted with that of Saul. Saul Uh, again, somewhat of a bunker that he's made for himself. He is not sure of his next step. He is not looking to the Lord to save. He is trying to calculate his situation more on a, a human standing. We find later, even when, when Saul uh, makes reference to him beginning to seek the Lord through the priest, bringing the uh, we're told that he, he tells the priest to bring the ark to him and, and seems to be beginning to you know, seek the Lord as the battle is going. And then he tells the priest, you know what, never mind, uh, we're going to go into battle. And, and Saul is this almost very kind of anxious, very uncertain um, picture to us of the king. But Jonathan shows this humble dependence upon Yahweh. And he is not presuming how this will turn out. We see even in in verse 6, as he says to his armor bearer, it may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord. So Jonathan is looking at the situation, knowing God is mighty to save, and he's saying, it may be that God is going to be pleased to use us to bring about a victory over our enemies. He's not presuming how this will go. He's not, you know, the, the, the name it and claim it, that all you have to do is, is name your victory and claim it and rebuke the devil and march forward and kind of this word of faith movement that, that comes across as very arrogant 
against the ways and purposes of God. We don't see that here in the life of Jonathan. He is confident in who God is, but that doesn't produce arrogance in Jonathan, but this humble dependence that if God is pleased, I know he can give us the victory this day. And throughout the scenario, he he sets up this test uh, as a way to say, okay, if the Lord is is going to give us the victory, then this will be a sign. And as I said, this is not necessarily a pattern for us to follow today as far as discerning God's will. But the, the point is that Jonathan was dependent upon the Lord giving them the victory. He wasn't just calculating the most strategic move based upon his own thinking. There was a dependence upon God to deliver them. And as Christians, we also move forward in this sort of humble dependence upon God, knowing his power, knowing his grace, knowing he is mighty to save, but all the while understanding that our will may not always align with his will in the day-to-day circumstances and events that unfold. We are to be in humble dependence upon him. And we find even in James, as you recall, in James 4.13, James says that we ought not to to be arrogant and say, you know, I will go to this city and I will make a profit here for a year and then I will return. That James says what you should say is, if the Lord wills, I will go here and do that and do this. So as we understand, yes, God is is mighty to save his people, but he is also sovereign. and, And in that we humbly depend upon him. But it is not to be a place of anxiety and fear. This picture instead is that of the shepherd. Like in Psalm 23, David would say, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. We, we have this ability to rest under the shepherd's care, knowing that he will do what is right and will continue to sustain us. Or in Philippians 4.4, we see this principle also as Paul writes to the church at Philippi, this picture of, of peace and rest in the Lord's goodness and provision and deliverance. Paul writes in Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. Let your reasonable, reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. There is a humble dependence as we truly stand upon the truth that God is a God who is mighty to deliver us, to save us. And finally, not only do we see Jonathan compelled in hope and humbly depending upon the Lord, but we see that instead of a stumbling block to the people of God, he becomes really a channel of blessing to the people of God. Jonathan is not as Saul is, who in many ways, and we'll see this even more clearly in the passage that follows, Saul is, is thinking more of himself. In fact, in, in the end, uh, or at the beginning of the next section, in verse 24, when he lays this oath on the men, Saul describes the Philistines as my enemies. This is more of Saul seeking to destroy his own personal enemy. He is not thinking in so much as the the kingdom of God, the people of God, the, the fame of God. 
And because of that, he becomes a stumbling block to the people. They are scattering. They are fleeing. They are hiding. They are, uh, some of them we see even have somewhat partnered with the Philistines, formed alliances, formed some form of, of agreement. They're, they're there in the, the town with the Philistines. And because of Saul's unwillingness to, to trust the Lord and lead the people, their own faith is wavering and they are also given over to fear and hopelessness. But as Jonathan, setting his hope on God, proceeds forward, he actually becomes a channel of blessing to the entire nation. Jonathan is something like a a conduit that is able to carry the current of God's power and God's grace on behalf of the nation. And in this sense, he is, as I said, a small s savior of Israel as God gives him grace and power. He becomes this channel of blessing to the people of Israel because he has set his hope on God. He has acted in such a way that demonstrates he, he believes God is mighty to save. And we find the Lord is pleased to work through Jonathan and on behalf of Jonathan. The, the, the scene is, is, is hard for us to really fathom that this one guy and his armor bearer, his loyal companion who's willing to, to die for Jonathan, you know, maybe at some point uh, this man would have wondered about his career choices and, and following after this young prince uh, who's going to likely lead him to his death. But we see this noble armor bearer following after Jonathan, his own faith no doubt strengthened as he follows Jonathan, but also the people of Israel, their faith is strengthened and all are aware that God himself has worked with Jonathan. I know we didn't read right to the end of the, the section, but um, the, the statement comes up a few times in this account. And if you jump right down to uh, 14 to verse 45, just to see how the people assessed this whole situation. How did they perceive what happened here? In verse 45, the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground. For he has worked with God this day. The people were well aware that what just happened was not simply Jonathan, but it was God working through him and with him. And as a result, the nation was delivered. And God, we're told at one point, even sent an earthquake in the midst of all of this upheaval. And you can just imagine um, the, the, the chaos in this camp of the Philistines. That, that suddenly they, they hear people shouting and yelling and people are running and someone is saying there's an invasion, there's an attack. No doubt in their minds they're envisioning a huge army that has come against them and they begin panicking. And then and, and we're told there's an earthquake. You can imagine from their perspective, they know they're under attack. They know that, that the Philistines are dying. Now there's an earthquake that's happening. They know something of this God of Israel. And as a result, it is just this widespread panic among the Philistine camp. So much so that some of the Israelites who were hiding come out of the holes and caves. They join in the battle. Those Israelites who had joined with the Philistines, we have this picture that they now abandon their former alliance and they begin fighting on behalf of Israel. And so Jonathan becomes this conduit of encouragement, of blessing to the people of Israel. And 
even for us as Christians, we have, by the grace of God, the Spirit of God, the ability to either encourage and build up one another or to discourage and dishearten one another. And we are called to be something like a mirror of God's power and God's goodness that as we reflect that, as we trust in him, we can be a means of encouragement to the people of God. We are even called by Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 20, ambassadors of Christ. We represent him not only to a watching world, but to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so as we live in such a way as to show our hope is in God, that he is a mighty savior, that he is trustworthy and true, we also become a means and channel of blessing to those around us, to our spouse, to our children, to our coworkers, to our neighborhood, to our town, by God's grace, to our country. This is meant to flow through the people of God to a watching world and in, as a result, glorify God. I came across a story this week of a man who was just giving a bit of a testimony as to how he was saved or how God had brought him to salvation. And I thought this fit very well with uh, an illustration here. Uh, I don't know his last name. His name is Charles. And I just came across his um, post on Twitter or X or whatever it's called nowadays. But um, he just said this. He said, an um, uh, account of a encountering a Christian. He said, I sat spellbound listening to the proprietor's tale of rebuilding after Hurricane Camille. She was a Christian. I am atheist. She was a business owner. I a Marxist. I sought to tear the world down. She to build it again. Why did it feel so good sitting here? Aline and I had stopped at the little bakery in past Christian Mississippi early in the morning on our way home to Atlanta. On our honeymoon cash, almost gone, we split a Jolly Roll and ate at the counter. The proprietor smiled at our thrift. God, she said, had been good to her. Rebuilding had been hard work, but the Lord gave her strength. Church, home, and business built new and thriving. All too soon, I finished the jelly roll. I wished we could stay longer, but we had many hours to drive. College classes the next day, trouble brewing between us, the aftermath of an abortion, the violence and anger of protests. I left behind the sweet, plagiant tones of God's love and plunged out into the storm of my life, taking care not to let the screen door bang behind us. A half century later, I still remember that bakery, the motes of dust in the sunlight, the ineffable sweetness. I couldn't identify them now, uh, couldn't identify them then, but now recognize as the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ, a foretaste of the forgiveness and inner peace I unknowingly longed for. The bakery owner could not know what precious gift she gave us that morning along with the jelly roll. There was no reason she had to. She kept her lamp lit. That was enough. I never dreamed I would reach the end of my life as a Christian, but now that I have, I know what I must do to honor the Lord. As the proprietor did, keep my lamp lit, and when I encounter wretched, angry, angry people mired in sin, share the sweetness of God's love and forgiveness, and do my best not to drive them away. And I just thought that was a, a wonderful example of how we may be a channel of blessing of God's grace to those around us and oftentimes not even realizing it. Not even realizing that the simple comment of encouragement, the simple mention of God's faithfulness, the simple mention of 
the encouragement of a church family to an unbeliever who is steeped in, in darkness, steeped in hopelessness, could be a ray of light that God is pleased to use to draw them to himself. And in many ways, that is something of the picture of Jonathan to the people of Israel. In the midst of hopelessness, by him trusting in the God who can save, acting in such a way, God was pleased to bring about a great and marvelous victory. And Jesus would tell his disciples, Matthew 5, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And there are thousands of ways that we can be the hands and feet of Christ. We can be the mouthpiece of Christ to not only our spouse and our children as we instruct them in the ways of the Lord. We show them what it means to walk in dependence upon God, both in times of our own repentance and failure and at times witnessing God's provision and mercy, but also to those around us in in our communities. Um, Maybe a a simple word of, of God's faithfulness can be used as a channel of blessing to those around us. Paul would describe the Christians as Lights who shine in the world, who shine in a crooked and twisted generation. And he instructs them in Philippians 2 to hold fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. We, by trusting and living in a way that that shows our God is mighty to save, become a conduit of his blessing to one another and to those around us. But we know that in all of these things, Jonathan was still a man with a nature like ours. He is not the final savior, and he doesn't even have opportunity to serve as the king of Israel. And so in all of these examples, we, we find, uh, the yes, in a sense, an example that we can be encouraged by and, and we can seek to, to emulate in our own Christian life. But more than that, we find it is a picture pointing us forward to Christ, who is the large S Savior, the Savior of the people of God, the one who has never uh, failed, who has never doubted, the one who has perfectly obeyed. And so Hebrews, I find, is a very helpful uh, pattern for us as we consider these Old Testament characters. Because in Hebrews 11... We have this description of faith, and uh, once I get there, and then I think it gives us a wonderful pattern to help us meditate upon these Old Testament narratives. Uh, Hebrews 11.1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And so it's upon this principle of faith 
that all of the faithful men and women of the past have operated. The assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. This is what's driving Jonathan forward, enabling him to place his hope upon God. And even in Hebrews, we have this wonderful list of men and women of faith who serve as an example. But then chapter 12 really helps us to understand all of this in its right context. Because chapter 12, verse 1 says, Therefore, which is, therefore, in light of all of these witnesses, therefore, in light of the Jonathans, in light of the Abrahams, in light of the Moseses, in light of all of these witnesses, the author says to us, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so with all of these faithful saints, we see Christ at the head leading the charge, him, the faithful one, him, the one who had gone into the grave, into the enemy's camp, and conquered single-handedly. Christ is our champion and we know in Romans 5:17 just as Jonathan the one man would take on the enemy and deliver the nation Paul says in Romans 5:17 for it is because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ. And here we find in Jonathan even a a pattern, a theme. God is mighty to save, whether with many or with few. And it is through the one man, Jesus Christ, whom we would be delivered, set free, our sins forgiven, the the grave conquered, the devil's works undone. And we are now being led in victory after Christ, our King. And so this morning, I pray you are encouraged to emulate the sort of life that really displays to a watching world, our God is mighty to save. He has saved me in Christ. He is now saving me by his sustaining power and sanctifying grace. And he will save me in the future when Christ returns and glorifies all things. He is a saving God. And if you are here this morning and you're still hiding in the caves of unbelief, then I urge you to step out into the light of God's grace through Jesus Christ. Abandon the hopeless and anxious kings and leaders of this world. The inheritance of Adam is worthless. Abandon it. Come to Christ. Be crucified with him and raised to walk in newness of life as you trust in him. And you too will know him to be a God who is mighty to save. Let's pray as we close there this morning. And uh, we'll have a final song together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord. And we know that we, in many ways, relate to faithless Israel. Lord, so many times we can be overwhelmed with our circumstances. We can look out at the... The darkening world, Lord, the uncertainties of the economy and our own health or whatever it might be. And and it can result at times in a, a paralyzing fear. But God, would you help us by your spirit to truly be a people who are convinced 
that you are mighty to save. Lord, that you will not abandon your people called by your name and this would compel us forward into a a wicked and perverse generation with the gospel of salvation, that we would be a people, Lord, even like William Carey, who take bold steps for the kingdom of God, trusting, Lord, you will use your word, your gospel will go forth, your word will not return void, and that we would live life uh, based upon who you are and who you've proven yourself to be. God, forgive us for our unbelief. Forgive us for, Lord, um, at times selfishness, maybe an unwillingness to, to be a blessing to those around us, to preserve ourselves, God. Help us to follow the example of Christ who left the glory of heaven. Lord, not considering the, Lord, all of that glory something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, Lord bearing our sin and shame upon himself, entrusting himself to you, his Father, and Lord, as a result, being raised up on the third day and now reigning at the right hand of the Father until all of his enemies are put under his feet. Help us to take up the armor of the Lord and to battle well in the strength that you give. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Thank you for tuning in to this sermon preached at Redeeming Grace Bible Church. If you'd like to find out more about Redeeming Grace Bible Church or find other sermons and resources, please visit us online at www.redeeminggracechurch.ca. We pray that the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you, that the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.